Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this summer edition, we'll feature Death by Chocolate, Parasomnia, and The Power of Prayer. But first up, here's some news. Caffeine can make you more open to persuasive messages. It's long been known that caffeinated beverages increase your arousal, stimulate your thinking, and make you more talkative. All of which can be used to change your mind. In 2005, the University of Queensland published a paper in the Journal of Applied Psychology, Caffeine, Cognition and Persuasion, Evidence for Caffeine Increasing the Systematic Processing of Persuasive Messages. They found that people drinking orange juice laced with caffeine showed more agreement with an article about voluntary euthanasia and the indirectly related subject of abortion than people who drank the orange juice laced with placebo. They waited 40 minutes for the buzz to kick in before they read the articles. A second experiment showed strong arguments to some people and weak arguments to others to see how much systemic processing, or what I like to call thinking, had occurred. Thinking occurred for both caffeinated and placebo drinkers but was greater in those with a buzz. However, the thinking was all in the direction of the arguments they were presented. They did further experiments where a majority endorsed the ideas in the articles, or a minority endorsed them. Normally, a majority endorsement will increase the number of people persuaded, but the caffeine drinkers were even more open to the tyranny of the majority. Caffeine can make you conform more to majority opinions. Like all mind-altering drugs, the context in which they're taken can make a difference. So caffeine might make you think more, but can also let other people direct what you end up thinking. If you want to persuade kids not to take drugs, you should give them a can of cola before the presentation. It's a whole new spin on Let's Go Out for Coffee. I figured it out. I figured it out. With a pencil and a pad, I figured it out. New Scientist reports, when we fall under the spell of a charismatic figure, areas of the brain responsible for scepticism and vigilance become less active. That's the finding of a study that looked at people's responses to prayers spoken by someone who they were told possessed divine healing powers. To identify the brain processes underlying the influence of charismatic individuals, Ulf Schott of Aarhus University in Denmark turned to Pentecostal Christians who believe that some people have divinely inspired powers of healing, wisdom and prophecy. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, Schott and his colleagues scanned the brains of 20 Pentecostalists and 20 non-believers while playing them pre-recorded prayers. The volunteers were told that six of the prayers were read by a non-Christian, six by an ordinary Christian, and six by a healer. In fact, all were read by ordinary Christians, because psychologists lie. Only in the devout volunteers did the brain activity monitored by the researchers change in response to hearing the pre-recorded prayers. Parts of the prefrontal and anterior cingulate cortices, 
which play key roles in vigilance and scepticism when judging the truth and importance of what people say, were deactivated when the subject listens to a supposed healer. So what that's saying is that when they believe they're hearing a healer, they're less sceptical and make less judgments. Activity diminished to a lesser extent when the speaker was supposedly a normal Christian. Schott says that this explains why certain individuals can gain influence over others and concludes that their ability to do so depends heavily on preconceived notions of their authority and trustworthiness. It's not clear whether the results extend beyond religious leaders, but Schott speculates that the brain regions responsible for scepticism may be deactivated in a similar way in response to doctors, parents, politicians and other authority figures. I figured it out! She figured it out! She figured it out! I figured it out! With the pencil and the pad, I figured it out! Ever thought that an attempt at seduction was so practiced that they might as well be seducing in their sleep? Well, Australian sleep physician Peter Buchanan from Sydney's Prince Alfred Hospital told the Australasian Sleep Association about a Canberra patient who walked out of the house and seduced and had sex with strange men and then woke up at home the next morning next to her husband with no memory of the night's events. According to the June 2003 Canadian Journal of Psychiatry, people who suffer from parasomnia can not only walk, but also drive a car, eat, have sex, or commit acts of violence, all without being awake and legally responsible for their actions. People have gone to court for murdering in their sleep. The journal catalogues 11 cases of initiating sex with someone in the household while asleep, but none of them included a seduction of an awake stranger in another building. Dr. Buchanan was sceptical at first, but convinced by the distress of the couple and their confusion. The husband had been aware of some sleepwalking and then had found strange condoms around the house. He eventually woke to find her missing one night and followed her to find her having sex with another man. She was diagnosed with rapid eye movement behavioural disorder, which is a form of parasomnia. In her case, sleep sex. Her body wasn't paralysed while she was sleeping and so she was able to act out her dreams. People only remember their dreams, in this case, when they're woken during the dream. So people with REM behavioural disorder are often stunned and disbelieving when told what they've done. Psychotherapy helps in half the cases, and medication can be helpful in others. We figured it out! They figured it out! They figured it out! We figured it out! With the pencil and the pad, they figured it out! A 62-year-old man in Dundee grew 20 years younger when the medication for his illness worked better than anyone expected. The Sunday Mail in the UK reports that he was crippled with porphyria cutanea tarda, a condition where there is excess iron in the liver, which gets in the way of making haemoglobin for the body to use oxygen properly. He lost all his grey hair, lost an unhealthy amount of weight, and he was so frail that everyday tasks exhausted him. His skin blistered and flaked. This led to scleroderma, which made his skin stiffen and seize up. He couldn't move his body from the waist up. He was treated with a harsh regime of ointments, steroids, and ultraviolet radiation therapy. Then, his hair grew back, dark brown instead of grey. When his skin cleared up, the wrinkles had gone away. He regained his energy, and now is able to go fishing with his sons and play with his grandchildren. He's still taking 15 tablets a day. Now when he's out with his 59-year-old wife, people ask her who a young toy boy is. He's now regularly mistaken for one of his 40-year-old sons, and his friends don't recognise him. Literally. 
Medical students have filmed his progress and want to present him as a case study to a medical conference in London. One in 6,000 Scots are thought to suffer from some form of this disease. Dr Robert Dorr, his consulting dermatologist, says it's incredibly unusual for dark hair to return. The wrinkles may have been reduced as a side effect of the scleroderma, which tightens up the skin. He's now concentrating on reducing the steroid intake. They don't know at this point how to reproduce his recovery in someone else with the same disease, but the world is watching this lucky man eagerly for insights into reversing the effects of ageing. Next up, Dr. Reggie Watts from Columbia University with Improvising in the Twelfth Dimension. Yeah, come on, yeah, the universe, universe, vibrating particles, higher dimensionalities and stuff, yeah, that's the stuff dreams are made of, like dragons and wizards flying through space and stuff, with the variable versions of graviton particles making their way like a heartbeat through the universe being detected by laser beams that detect gravitons and therefore give us evidence and proof of how the layering of the universe can become something quite fascinating even for the layman to understand that the nature of reality could be verifiably holographic but you'll never know until you die but that's okay because it's really fun to live in the meantime right here in physics world you like it yeah i love it i love it i love it on a chalkboard by a very attractive person who happens to be a very smart person, yeah. Ooh, yeah. You'll discover new things in a demonstrative way. Just wait for yourself to put yourself on the line and you hear the calling of the You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now death by chocolate. Dave the Happy Singer asked, if dogs can be killed by eating chocolate, can humans be killed by eating chocolate? If so, what's the lethal dose? What's the LD50 of chocolate for humans? Well, the LD50, which Dave refers to, is the lethal dose that would kill 50% of subjects. Chocolate contains the stimulants theobramine and caffeine. Dogs can only process them very slowly, so they affect the dog for up to 20 hours. The lethal amount for dogs is about 100 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. White chocolate does contain less theobramine and caffeine than milk chocolate, but it's still dangerous for dogs. Dogs find the flavour of chocolate addictive and after sampling a safe amount will forever be sniffing out for more and seek out a lethal amount. Dogs are very good at finding chocolate. 
Humans process chocolate differently to dogs, so the lethal dose is 1 gram per kilogram of body weight. For an adult, that could be about 10 kilograms of chocolate. The LD50 of caffeine in humans is about 175 milligrams per kilo. The LD50 of caffeine in humans is about 175 milligrams per kilo of body weight. So a person would have to eat a lot of chocolate for caffeine to be a problem. An individual 30 gram bar of milk chocolate will contain around 6 milligrams of caffeine, which is similar to a cup of decaffeinated coffee. A cup of instant coffee, in comparison, contains about 40 to 100 milligrams of caffeine. Small children can be at risk of getting sick from eating too much chocolate, but adults are mainly safe. Theobramine and caffeine belong to the same class of chemical stimulants as theophylline found in tea, the methylxanthines. Theobramine is a mild diuretic, which means it makes you pee, and it's been used to treat the accumulation of body fluids after heart failure. Theobramine has also been used to treat high blood pressure because of its ability to dilate blood vessels. It's a mild stimulant and relaxes the smooth muscles of the bronchi and the lungs. This could be of use to people suffering asthma. Research shows that it doesn't really contribute to acne or tooth decay as it has in the popular mind. In the human body, theobramine levels are halved between 6 to 10 hours after consumption. Chocolate does contain a whole bunch of other mind-altering substances, but they don't survive contact with your stomach and never reach your brain. Chocolate is famous for containing phenylethylamine, a compound made in the brains of people in love, and one of the chemicals people are withdrawing from when a romantic relationship ends. In larger doses than you can get from chocolate, it's reported that phenylethylamine can also help 60% of people suffering from clinical depression because they're suffering a deficiency. It has no harmful side effects, but because it doesn't last long in the body, it's administered with the Parkinson's drug, Selegaline, which helps each dose stay in the body longer. Sounds like it's chocolate time. It's a fact, so deal with that by Sam Greenwood. Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos. Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, yeah, deal with that The moon is moving away from the earth by 4 centimetres a year And when it's gone we are all well and truly buggered Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact so deal with that Blue whales are bloody massive Their tongues weigh as much as an elephant Its heart is the size of a car And some of its blood vessels are so wide That you could swim down them Oh, it's a fact So you deal with that It's a fact So deal with that Your average pillow About six years old Is made up from one tenth of skin Living mites Dead mites and mite dog. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. That's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. 
The duck's quack doesn't echo, says the guy at the pub. And then his eyes get very big, and he says, and nobody knows why. The riddle is that it isn't true, it's widely believed, but it's not a myth, because there is some reality behind it. How can this be? The answer is, it's an illusion. Fooling the ear this way takes us into the auditory illusion world of psychoacoustics. Psychoacoustics, by analysing the way our ears and brains are fooled, has led to the development of MP3 and other sound file compression techniques that work by throwing away the 80% that you just won't notice is gone. It's also being used to provide surround sound from just two speakers and a whole range of useful tricks. An echo is a reflection of sound from a surface, just like the reflection of light from a mirror, and heard by the listener sometime after the original sound. For example, the echo reflected off Timmy down the well, or by the walls of a room, or the side of a cliff. A true echo is a single reflection of the sound source. If the surface you're reflecting the sound from is less than 16 metres away, then your ear won't hear the echo. This is because the delay between the original sound and the reflected sound isn't big enough for you to be able to tell the difference. If so many echoes are heard by a listener that they aren't able to tell the difference between them and they just blur together, then they're called reverberation. To eliminate echoes, some performance venues use sound absorbers called diffusers. An anechoic chamber is full of wedges of sound-absorbing diffusers to soak up the extra sound and has no echoes at all. It's a strange experience to stand in one because it's an environment like nothing else you experience in normal life. It gets really quiet really quickly. The University of Salford's Acoustic Research Centre got Daisy the Duck into their acoustics laboratory for the British Association Festival of Science to do the ultimate tests. First, they put her in an anechoic chamber just to hear the unadulterated quack, the real thing, without reflections. No, a duck without reflections is not a vampire. Daisy was just a sitting duck. For the ultimate test of the facts, they put Daisy in a reverberation chamber to hear if she echoes when she quacks. If there are sounds that don't echo, then this would have technological applications. There's a video of the experiments on the Salford University Acoustics website at www.acoustics.salford.ac.uk. It's a duct tape. With a cathedral-like chamber to bounce the sound off, did Daisy's quack echo? I think I hear the sound of a mistaken belief disappearing. Of course, most people's experience of echoes comes from yelling at a cliff, yet ducks rarely fly anywhere near a cliff. So the researchers had to get more creative to give people what they find more intuitive. Having proved that a duck's quack does echo, they felt free to play with an electronics effects box to help us imagine the duck flying past the side of a cliff 50 metres away. Now, listen carefully, and I think you'll hear how this myth started. Now, listen again to the ordinary quack, and then the quack with one echo. Could you hear the difference? It's very subtle. The duck's quack is quiet, and is not one loud sound like a yell, but sort of a quack, where the second part of the sound can be confused with the echo from the first part. It could be hard to tell the two sounds apart, but to claim that there is no echo is just quackery. You can see Daisy in the Acoustics Labs at www.acoustics.salford.ac.uk. Daisy lives at Stockley Farm in Cheshire, where she graciously accepts visitors by appointment. Duck's quacks do echo, 
It's a fact, so deal with that. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Training your mind can alter your DNA. We've now moved beyond studies showing that mental training alters the structure and function of the brain to studies showing that it alters the structure and function of our genes. There have been a lot of people pushing the idea that my genes made me do it. Whether it's acting in a certain way or suffering from a particular disease. However, the genes in our cells don't matter one bit if they're not turned on. And there are many things in life that can turn off bad genes, such as those that raise the risk of disease, such as breast cancer. Last year, New York State started telling 31 private companies that they need licenses to take DNA samples from state residents. And in June, the California state government sent cease and desist letters to 13 of the companies with the same message. Personal DNA scans can't really tell you as much as the companies would like you to think. Reading what genes a person has is old hat. Determining which genes are turned on is where the action is. A rat study showed in 2004 that the way a mother rat treats her pups determines whether genes related to neuroticism and fearfulness are on or off. Now comes a study that looks at something similar in people. However, this is not about mothering. This is about what's known as the relaxation response. Back in the 1960s, Herbert Benson of Harvard Medical School coined this term to refer to the opposite of the stress response, which floods the body with stress hormones, raises blood pressure, and elevates heart rate. In contrast, the relaxation response is a state of deep rest that decreases metabolism, relaxes muscles, slows heart rate, and lowers blood pressure. Over the years, Benson and colleagues developed a surefire way to elicit it. This method basically consists of repeating a word or phrase of your choice, or repeating a muscle movement of any kind, while letting go of everyday thoughts that drift through your mind. You just need to stay in the relaxed state not attaching or indulging any of the memories or ideas that come through your mind for 20 minutes a day to see significant health benefits. This is pretty much the most basic, simplest meditation technique. Now they've figured out how it works, how it helps high blood pressure, alleviate pain, help with infertility and rheumatoid arthritis. The relaxation response alters which genes associated with the body's response to stress are on and which are off. As Benson said in a statement, we found how changing the activity of the mind can alter the way basic genetic instructions are implemented. The study is being billed as the first comprehensive study of how the mind can affect gene expression. By mind, they mean mental practices, such as meditation and prayer, which were amongst the techniques used by the 19 long-term practitioners of the relaxation response who were studied, along with the 19 volunteers who never engaged in such practices. 
After the people who'd never tried it went through eight weeks of training, the scientists compared before and after patterns of gene expression, finding that mental training altered the expression of genes involved in inflammation in the form of cell suicide called apoptosis, which can keep damaged cells from forming cancers, and in how the body handles damaging free radicals, which can speed up ageing. It really is time to stop thinking of our DNA as our destiny. Even thinking can change it. Next up, Dr. Reggie Watts from Columbia University with Improvising in the Twelfth Dimension. very certain of things that he wanted to do, yeah. So he used to torture cats and stuff because he had to, because he had to, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they'd like to do a light experiment where they created a slot and a piece of cardboard and put a beam of light through it with a photographic plate to determine if it was a light particle, was it a particle, or was it a wave? But we never knew because the uncertainty gave way for a rave scene of physical evolution and Einstein proves really interesting laws that we built on. But now M theory, M theory's got another way of approaching the description of the universe. Cause it's a very hard thing to describe, but it's something that's really fun for you and I to imagine. And science fiction to use in a pseudo-scientific fashion for you to believe that a world is more credible in an immersive environment as they're creating science fiction plots that don't really make sense, but the visual aspect is what we went there for the first place to see it. Just like Tron, Tron's not gonna be a very good movie but it's gonna look really good in 3D because the characters are really cheesy and the actors are really corny but that's okay, they ruined a really good chance but it's the universe, 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 the if you live in Sydney and you'd like to broadcast science on radio, we're looking for new members of the Diffusion team. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.